This week on The Futurists, Charlie Melcher. The transition that we're living through right now is one from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. It's one from unidirectional and passive consumed stories to one that is two-way and participatory and embodied. That to me is the fundamental shift of storytelling in the 21st century. Hi there, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik, your co-host. Um, Brett King is on the road, but he's going to try to join the show as well. That'll be fun to have him. He's traveling constantly looking for more futurists to, to interview for the show. And this week, we're going to talk to someone that I'm very fond of. Uh, one of my favorite people from 2022 that I met last year in the post-pandemic era where we're all out there making new connections. I was introduced to a fellow named Charles Melcher. Charlie Melcher, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rob. So nice to be here. I'm really happy to have you here. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. We met at that cool event in Santa Fe, Creative Experience, which for me was the first real like in-person event that we got to go to after the pandemic. And um, I met so many cool people there. Uh, tell me a little bit about your memory of that show in Santa Fe. Well, you were the highlight, frankly. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, no, it's true. You gave that keynote and I thought, wow, this is really going to be a great event. Uh, it, it frankly was a little bit downhill after that, but but it was oh, fun. It was flattery it was... will get you everywhere on this show. <laughs> you know, um, the show was actually quite interesting to me because that's normally was, our experience. Yeah, it was right at the intersection. Oh, Brett's joined us. Hi, Brett. Great that you could join us. Uh, happy to have you back on the show with us. Um, that show was cool because it was focused at the intersection of the real world and the virtual world, right? So it was called Creative Experience, I guess, for want of a better term. Uh, the idea is that, you know, there there's all sorts of new technology that can enhance real world experiences. And that could be anything from, uh, you know, retail shopping experience to uh, an arcade or even something as crazy and fun as Meow Wolf, which was definitely a highlight of that show for me. Yes. Um, but meeting you was one of the high points there. And then, of course, we got together again when you were on your way to Burning Man or coming back from Burning Man in Los Angeles. And then we saw each other in New York where I visited your place. For the folks who are listening, by way of introduction, uh, Charlie does two things, and they're both really relevant to what we're doing here at The Futurist Show. He's the founder of a company called Melcher Media, and they produce really what I believe are the most interesting books in the world. And it's hard to imagine um, talking about books on a show about the future, but in a moment, we'll get into that. And we'll talk a little bit about how Charlie is pushing the boundaries of expression, the capability of what you can actually do with a, a physical, tangible book. Uh, that's one thing he does with Melcher Media. And the other reason he's on the show is that he's the host of a podcast called The Future of Storytelling, which is squarely in our wheelhouse. And along with that, there's the Futurists Explorer Club. And, and why don't you tell us a little bit about the Explorer Club? Because this was what, the last thing we were talking about. I was super interested in it, this idea of... It's, it's not like Dora the Explorer, right? <laughs> it's, it's our form. Well, so just to give you a little background, I started the future of storytelling originally as a one-day summit. Yeah. And it was a by-invitation event. We invited 300 people. And it grew year over year till the point where we were doing this uh, event for uh, a full week of programming for almost 6,000 people between mm. the summit and this public festival. And all of that was going just amazingly well uh, with a concept of sort of a big tent of storytelling. We use that term very broadly. It, it, it was truly a multidisciplinary gathering, but it all had to stop cold when the pandemic came because uh, mm. no one was, was traveling. Um, and so the Future of Storytelling Explorers Club became our uh, pandemic pivot, if you will, to being able to create a year-round membership club where the the best people, the you know, the most interesting people in our community would come with us on a, a monthly trip to visit one of the world's great storytellers, a master storyteller, and get a live tour of their creation. So we it, would really get to meet the same kind of people that might have come to the summit, but now we mm -hmm. got to go to their place yeah. and see what they were working on, their studio, their their exhibit, their museum. Um, so for example, we went to see Team Lab in Tokyo um, and Tokachi gave us a real-time tour of, of what is actually now the most popular single artist museum in the world. Oh, cool. Uh, it's an incredible place. It's an interactive digital museum where all of the art is projected on the walls. And as you move through, it responds to you being there and other people being there. 
Um, we went to see Weta Workshop and Richard Taylor gave us a tour of his extraordinary uh, shop in, in um, New Zealand. New Zealand. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, great. Uh, we went to uh, see uh, Meow Wolf, the pre-opening tour of their uh, Omega Mart in Las Vegas. Tell so people we, what a Meow Wolf is, just for those who aren't familiar with Meow Wolf. Oh, I love Meow Wolf. Um, Meow Wolf was, is a collective of artists who got together originally in Santa Fe. Um, uh, George R.R. R. Martin actually bought them a bowling alley, and a, an abandoned bowling alley, and they built inside of it a story world. And when you walk in, it looks like a old picket fence house. And you and as, as you enter the house, there's no one in there, but there's clues and papers and photos. And you're sort of piecing together a story and you can open any drawer and walk anywhere. And then you're in the kitchen, you open the refrigerator and it's a, a white light and a portal. And you can step through the refrigerator into um, this extraordinary creative world that honestly it's something between like a acid trip and, <laughs> and and uh some just like artists you know creative explosion and um and then you can wander multi floors and and have these this adventure and there's a story you can piece together anyway it became such a popular destination that it was not only the the most popular tourist attraction in Santa Fe but in all of New Mexico Mm. Um, and so based and now on they're that, in Vegas, as you mentioned, and they're also opening up in Denver. And I think they're opening now another location in, in Texas. And these are all uh, entertainment deprived places. It's not like Los Angeles where you know we've got we're awash in entertainment. Um, there are people visiting those towns that want something to do. One thing I'm noticing as you talk about the Explorers Club is that this is all experiential. Uh, so when you define storytelling, uh, you're not necessarily talking about someone telling you a great yarn. You're talking about someone giving you a great time, like giving you a great experience. Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah. So after 10 years of curating the future of storytelling, my my insight, and and frankly, it comes from an experience I had at a at a punch drunk theatrical. Um, do, do you know Punch Drunk, the immersive theater company? Mm -hmm. uh, they did that famous piece called Sleep No More. Uh, it's it's just a very um experiential theater, right? It's non-linear. You get to wander through build a building. Every room is an intricate set and the actors run and play through. And the, and the only rule is that you, a guest, have to wear a mask and you're not allowed to speak. Mm. So you're kind of like a ghost wandering through this space, trying to piece together the story. Um, so I went to see one of these experiences in London. It was called The Drowned Man. And the conceit was a 1950s kind of Hollywood studio. Um, and they were making a movie. Um, and so after a couple of hours of wandering around and having this, this amazing experience, I was getting tired, jet lag, and I was going to call it a night. And just then this young actress walks into the room that I'm in and she's um, wearing this tight leopard skin dress and she's got these high heels and ruby red lipstick. And I think, okay, I'll stay a little longer. <laughs> and so I, I follow her as she's playing through different rooms and different scenes. And, and then she ducks behind this door all of a sudden. And on a whim, I decide to follow her. And I enter this door and she's waiting for me on the other side and she locks it. She shuts it and bolts it locked. And I'm like, oh my, what now? And she brings me down this little corridor and we step into this little room and she then reaches up and she takes off my mask. And so my cloak of invisibility has been removed. I feel kind of naked, exposed, you know, just the two of us in this room. And, and then she reaches up and she takes this trench coat, one of those 50s kind of Bogart numbers, and she puts it on me, ties the sash, adjusts the collar up just so. And then she takes me down this other little corridor into a, a room that gets progressively dark. And then I'm just in pitch black and she lets go. And now I'm just alone in the dark and all my senses go on high alert. I'm like, what's going to happen? I'm listening and hearing and smelling. And, and then I hear the sound action over a loudspeaker and there's a flash of light and then another flash of light and my eyes adjust and I realize I'm surrounded by 30, 40 of these silver umbrellas, the kinds that photographers use to diffuse the strobes. And my eyes adjust and I see the actress and she's across the room and she's coming towards me slowly, but she looks completely different. She's got this intensity in her eyes. I think maybe she's insane. <laughs> and as she's coming closer, I think, I might need to be, be prepared to physically defend myself against this crazy woman. And, but I can't move. I'm frozen in place. And she gets close and her hands coming right towards my neck. And then it lands gently on my cheek. And she takes another step forward. And now I feel the warmth of her up against my body. I can smell the sweetness of her perfume. 
my arms uh, instinctively go around her waist. And then I'm there alone with this young woman in my arms, and I realize I'm no longer afraid of her. Do we have to, like, is this now getting it R-rated or something? I no, no. <laughs> Sorry. But it dawns on me that I'm no longer afraid of her. I'm afraid of me. Like, what role am I willing to play? This beautiful starlet's in my arms. I'm alone in the room, but I'm a happily married man. Am I going to, as she leans up to give me a kiss, all of a sudden I hear, cut! And she has stepped away, uh, and no, it's I pitch black it's again, and I'm like shaking. Every part of me is activated. I'm like, what's just happened? And then I feel her hand on my arm, and she leads me out That's of the dark, cool. back into this little room, and she takes off the coat and hangs it on the hook, and she takes the mask, and she puts it back on me, and she's about to see me unceremoniously out the door when she stops, and she whispers in my ear, I think you'd be great for the part. And then I'm afloat with all those other ghosts in that building wandering around. I mean, I had gone in there as a voyeur, and then I left cool. in the role of like the leading man. And then it dawned on me, I was auditioning for the role of the leading man in that movie that was supposedly being produced in that show. I had just had a, a, a production put on for a play for one, and I was the leading man. And I didn't even know it. And you know what? I walked around London the rest of that weekend with a spring in my step and like adventure waiting for me around every corner. I mean, literally London was now a set. And I looked at the city differently because I realized that I could be the hero in any adventure. And so for me, that's the kind of stories that I um, am hungry for. Mm. It's a story that was immersive, participatory, multisensorial, um, personalized and yet social and all of those things come together to make it truly unforgettable like mm. i lived that story charles at the same time i you know i'd like to um delve you know we we've just seen um avatar the way of water across the two billion in box office takings it's now one of the 10th highest grossing films um of all time and of course, this is a very unique way of storytelling because of the way um, James Cameron filmed it and, and produced it and so forth. Mm -hmm. But we also have the metaverse and these other technologies coming along. And it's getting harder for traditional Hollywood to greenlight movies because the costs of doing these productions are becoming so much greater and the return is not there. So, you know, how do you think the that art of uh, storytelling in, in those mediums, in, in the, the digital medium? So I, I completely um, agree with you that it's getting harder and harder for Hollywood. And I think that the difference, the, tr the transition that we're living through right now is one from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. It's one from unidirectional and passive consumed stories to one that is um, two-way and participatory and embodied. That to me is the fundamental shift of storytelling in the 21st century. And we don't have a great vernacular for that second half, what we're shifting to. We're kind of, it's like the D.W. Griffith moment. No. We figured out the vernacular for film 100 years ago. We haven't quite figured out the vernacular for interactive storytelling. We're, we're moving to the feelies now. Yeah. Uh, right. We're, we're going into <laughs> the feelies. I like that. Well, that I'm stealing that from uh, Brave New World. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, we are. Um, we're moving into an era where our stories are going to be things that we have um, agency in, that yeah. we are able to co-create, that we're able to um, experience in a more full-bodied way. I mean, it's insane that that almost all of our stories that we experience as kids growing up were through our eyes and our ears. That That was almost it. Right? You would sit passively in front of a television or in front of a movie screen or in front of a radio or a record player or, and, and just like let it wash over you. But now we're in the third generation of game video game players, right? So for 50 years, people have been playing video games. They keep getting better and better and more and more immersive. And now I'd argue they're cinematic. You know, the latest generation of Xbox and PlayStation is really oh, quite yeah. superb in quality. Uh, do you think that's closer to the kind of immersive storytelling that you're talking about? Because it is participatory. It's first person. You're the protagonist. You make the decisions. You have agency. These games make more money than Hollywood blockbusters, too. Yeah, that's right. 
So, so games are the major influence into this next generation of storytelling, no question, because they did allow um, several things. They allowed real agency. They allow a social component, right? That's a big part of a lot of the success of some of these massive games. Um, and they allow you know, incredible imaginations, right? Like world building in, in, in an extreme way. Um, what sometimes they're missing or are still struggling with is how to incorporate you know, plot and narrative and and character development, like some of the the things that we love from novels um, and other forms of traditional storytelling, need to come together to merge with the world of gaming. And and so yes, I think it's a major influence. I think that's what that's what people are counting on with the uh, excitement around the metaverse. Um, is looking at how many hours people spend playing games and that mm. comfort level, and uh, can we. Yeah, but personally, I think the thing that's missing in the metaverse is is story, right? Yeah. It's 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 story, plot, and character, and um, all of those purpose. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. It's true. I mean, it's sort of like it's a great world, but there's nothing to do there. It's like an empty theme park. I think you're right about that. Um, now, okay, let me let me break it down like this because here's how I understand this. As you know, I've done um, video games for many years. I've also been involved in filmed entertainment and television, linear storytelling, if you will, in video and. Um, the way I think about it is that there, there's a sort of primal instinct uh, towards experience, right? And, and um, you know, uh, the, 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 I guess the, the kind of proverbial narrative is uh, there's a bunch of guys sitting around a fire and they go out with spears to kill the, you know, to kill the dangerous beast. And that's an adventure. Some people get hurt. Um, some people come back victorious and they've killed the beast. And then they sit around the fire that night, and then the person with the gift of gab recounts the narrative and talks about the heroism and the trials and tribulations and so forth. And so you have experience and you have story. And um, this, the process of telling a story is where we take the random events, the unpredictable events that come in a random sequence, and then we kind of recapitulate those and structure meaning into them by putting them into a linear sequence. And now suddenly it makes sense. So you need both. You need experience and you need story. But to my mind, they're, they're two different impulses, right? When you're doing experience, you're not really thinking about linear story. When you're doing a story, what you really want is a great narrator like James Cameron, who's got the gift of gab, who can really enchant you and put you into a trance. What's your take on that? Do you think that split is changing? Are these two things merging? What's your view? I, I do think that they're merging. Uh, I do think that story at its core is the way that we understand the world. It's the way that we understand other people, create empathy, and it's the way that we understand ourselves, come to understand ourselves. And, and all of that as a response to living in a dangerous and chaotic universe, right? Like we're, so at the heart, storytelling is about learning and survival. Like those are the things that, that, I, that's why we are story animals, right? We we evolved to be able to tell stories so that you would avoid that cave with the tiger in it <laughs> and live to pass on your genes. Um, and and I like to think in a way that stories are like the programming language of the human species. It's, it's literally yeah. how we come to know how to operate in the world. And um, I would say too that that uh, we are we are also you know pat, pattern recogni recognition machines like we our brains are set up to try to make sense of that random data We're, and and stories are one of the ways that we do that um, or the way that we ex the make sense and explain it to somebody else and explain it to ourselves by the way the, I I love this um term that a friend of mine taught me called throthing uh, it was a group of people who would go do live action role playing games and they'd spend a weekend playing games and then uh, Sunday night they'd meet in the pub and they would over. A, over a frothy beer, they would each tell the story of their own experience. And it was in the telling, as you said, that it became real, that they made sense of it. And that's how they also would remember it moving yeah. forward. Yeah, um, that's right. So we I kind of find meaning into it. And then the, the narrative is like an efficient way to transmit the, the learning from that experience. Uh, well, it's a one way thing to I do want to say, though, Rob, is when, when you describe the sitting around the campfire, you know, our ancestors after the hunt, um, one difference is that. It, it was not one person who got up and told the story of the day's hunt. Um, we had a cultural anthropologist, Dr. Mike Welsh, who came to Faust, and he spent a lot of time with preliterate 
um, tr tribes in Papua New Guinea. And when he would sit at in the evening to hear the story, yes, somebody would start to tell the story of the day's hunt. Somebody else would wrestle for control of the narrative. A third uh. person would heckle. He, he would describe it as a, a living, breathing, collaborative story. Right. It was our our perception of somebody standing on a podium and reading the story or, or delivering the story that developed with the invention of, you know, or, alphabet and the idea of a mm -hmm. linear story and, and that everything was sort of created by one person and then presented. Um, but in his take, original storytelling from or from a tradition of morality was a collaborative art. And it was ah. like a living, breathing thing. Oh, and so think it's about participatory. Music. It's not it's linear. It's not one way. OK. And Good. I think that's yeah. going to be true now too. Like we're yeah. moving away from this idea yeah. of the single auteur to the collective, and and stories will be co-created and uh, and and lived. I mean, I, I the the term I like to use is living stories. Wow, cool. Okay, well, let's hang on to this for a little while. We're going to go to a break in a moment, but before we do, we do this thing with our guests, um, which is surprising and fun. It's We're going to ask you about some of the things that inspired you. So Brett's going to ask you a series of quick questions. Just give us a quick answer, and then we'll take a little break. We'll come right back with Charles Melcher from Melcher Media and the Future Storytelling. Hey, Brett, go for it. This, this is the quick fire round. All right, Mr. Melcher, what was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or book or movies? I don't know about first, but Star Wars just really changed my world forever. So that that movie was uh, uh, seminal in my life. <laughs> 1977. It's the first movie I ever saw with my dad, incidentally. Really? So, wow. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I remember it. What what technology has most changed humanity, do you think? Um, the alphabet. Okay, that's cool. Written word. Um, name a futurist or a storyteller or entrepreneur that has influenced you personally and why? God, I feel so um, unoriginal with this answer, but uh, Steve Jobs. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, he, you know, he's going to be remembered for a long time. Um, do you think there's a notable prediction that a futurist entrepreneur or sci-fi prediction uh, practitioners made that uh, has stuck in your memory? Um, I guess I would have to say Hal from 2001: Space Odyssey. Very cool. And the last one is what sort of story we talked about this before the show dystopian versus utopian uh, futures but what sort of uh, science fiction future is most representative of the future you hope for hmm. yes we we were just sort of talking about how almost all science fiction is dystopian and that is i'm an optimist so i'm i'm very hopeful that uh, things are going to work out well um i tend to look more to artists uh who are you know creating visions of the world that are positive and uh, where, where the story works out okay for the human species. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure I have a single science fiction. No, but you're, you're a techno-optimist, I guess, or a future optimist, right? I am. I am an optimist, and I, I am a, still a believer that net-net uh, all of the new technologies are, are a positive thing for the world and will uh, lead to a better future. Great. All right. So you're listening to The Futurist. This is Brett King. That was our quick fire round. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Charles Melcher after these words from our sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one FinTech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I am your host, Brett King, with my co-host, Rob Tersek. And uh, before we jump back into our, our continuing discussion with Charles Melcher, 
Let's hear some news from the future. Great. Uh, Hi, Brett. This week, I've got a deep dive for us, for our listeners. Uh, This this time, the deep dive is going to be on social media. I thought it'd be relevant to the topic about storytelling to get into social media, which is really like the most emotional technology storytelling platform we've ever had. And this week, the focus is on the usual suspects, Meta and TikTok. We've talked about them before, but this is a story that just keeps on giving. And so here we are back with more information about Meta and and TikTok. Uh, As everybody knows who's been listening to our show, TikTok has been putting tremendous pressure on Facebook. Uh, It's cutting into Facebook revenue. It's growing really fast. Uh, uh, TikTok has been doubling and doubling and doubling. Um, And and Facebook has been going through some really serious challenges, uh, not the least of which is congressional scrutiny. Uh, You'll recall that just a few years ago, Facebook was in trouble because of Cambridge Analytica using uh, using data from users in ways that really weren't authorized and without permission, targeting people and manipulating people's uh, perceptions of the news and information. Uh, And and just over a year ago, Francis Hogan, a former Facebook executive, was testifying before Congress uh, about Facebook's knowledge that some of its products, including Instagram, were highly addictive to young people. And Facebook was in a world of hurt at that point. Um, And so they did what a lot of people do. Uh, If you've ever had uh, somebody in your life who's done done something egregious and you're trying to hold them accountable, you might have encountered this where they say, hang on a second, what about this other guy who's doing this other thing over here? And they try to change the subject and divert away. Well, uh, Mark Zuckerberg brilliantly did this. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Meta and the founder of Facebook, went to Congress and testified not about Facebook, but about TikTok. Uh, where he pointed out that TikTok was actually the people who were doing uh, all the really bad stuff and um, and was trying to divert attention away from the scrutiny on Facebook and have more scrutiny applied to TikTok. And um, and it worked amazingly. It's It was actually quite successful. Uh, so uh, Facebook was able to direct attention and scrutiny towards uh, towards TikTok in a way that has been really penalizing TikTok in some respects. Um, it's probably the smartest move that Zuckerberg has made in the last couple of years. Uh, so under President Trump, there was talk about banning TikTok. There was great pressure to get TikTok under, under some, some sort of regulatory control. The US doesn't really have any regulation over social media. Uh, Trump was attempting to force TikTok to divest the US operation and sell it to his friend and fundraiser, uh, Larry Ellison uh, of Oracle. Well, now there's an update. So um, since that time, TikTok has been under investigation and there's been this sort of uh, negotiation languishing in the Council on Foreign Investment about whether TikTok should divest or what measures it can do to continue to operate in the United States, uh, what levels of transparency. And the management of TikTok has been doing handstands to try to placate the U.S. government and allow them uh, allow the company to continue to operate here. Their great fear is that they'll be banned. And of course, that would probably be followed by bans in other countries. Already, TikTok has been banned in India and a couple of other countries. Uh, so there's great concern about that. And they've gone to great lengths. Uh, they've uh, offered the U.S. government to have oversight over how they use user data. Uh, TikTok has agreed to host the service in Texas on servers that are owned by Oracle. So they kind of halfway conceded to that idea that Larry Ellison can exert some control. They've created transparency centers that allow people to understand how TikTok uses data. They've sworn up and down that they don't share data back with their parent company in China, uh, ByteDance. And they've even offered to create an independent proxy board uh, led by a former FBI agent uh, to supervise how they use data. And they got very close to a deal in August, but now it's all gone off the rails. Um, In the last month, TikTok has been banned by by 19 different state governments in the United States. So no employee of of 19 different state governments can use TikTok, they get restricted access to that app. It's also been banned in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives. And now the White House has also chimed in with a ban. Now, realistically, I'm not sure how many of our congressional representatives are actually using TikTok. Although I do think uh, maybe AOC or uh, Kamala Harris have had actually some success on TikTok as social. But it's not going to make a huge dent in the company's business. It's more yeah, embarrassing. Yeah, it's big on TikTok. But it's a little bit more an embarrassment for TikTok and a setback. 
And now, amazingly, there was a revelation that TikTok actually was doing all the bad things with data that they were accused of. So this just broke in the last week or two. Uh, Forbes was doing an investigation, the business publication Forbes. And it turns out that a number of Forbes journalists were being tracked by TikTok. Uh, they were monitoring their communications. Uh, the folks at TikTok were trying to find out who inside the company was leaking information to these journalists. And so it's all been exposed. Uh, now, it turns out that TikTok has actually been doing the, the exact bad things that it was accused of. So in a weird sort of paradoxical way, it looks like Facebook's diversion where you know Zuckerberg was like, don't blame Facebook, look at TikTok instead. They're really the villain here. Looks like it's justified, but Facebook's not out of the woods. Uh, as it turns out this week, um, the regulatory bodies in the European Union have cracked down quite hard on Facebook uh, for some lingering violations that go all the way back to 2018. Uh, if you've been studying the space, you'll know that there is a regulatory act called the General Data Protection Regulation Act, GDPR. If you work in the internet, it's a big pain in the neck because you have to comply with this European Union law. Uh, the European Union law gives people the right to opt out of any kind of tracking whatsoever. Facebook has been sued uh, for, um, has, has been in trouble for violating this GDPR regulation. And this week um, on Wednesday, Facebook was struck, Meta was struck with a 14 million, uh, sorry, $400 million fine for violations of that GDPR. But that's not all. It doesn't end there. Um, one of the outcomes here could be that Facebook will be, will be banned from doing any kind of tracking uh, where it'd have to be opt-out tracking. And there's a real precedent for this, and it's a really negative one for Meta and for Facebook and Instagram, which is that last year, Apple did something similar. Uh, they allowed Apple iPhone users to opt out of tracking. And as a result, uh, uh, Meta lost billions of dollars in advertising revenue because they were unable to do that ad targeting, ad tracking. So the big story here is that uh, we have examples now of bad behavior by all the major social networks. Uh, there's tremendous disarray in this space. And it turns out that the United States seems to have like uh, outsourced its regulatory authority to the European Union, and we're allowing them to do the real enforcement of regulation, where the United States, it's much more about um, posture, gesture, and, and ironically, grandstanding in a way they'll get you some coverage on social media and build some uh, build some power among your base. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting narrative. Uh, but Rob, share. you know, that 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 regulatory posture is not unusual for the US. The US doesn't like to impose standards and regulations on US corporations. They let US corporations write the laws that define define the regulations around their industries. Um whereas you know the EU does define these standards. Why you know, why do you think it is that um the US was the last country in the world to accept chip and pin? Um, you know, credit cards and debit cards. North Korea had chip and pin before the United States did, you know. Um, and part of that is the reluctance to impose standards on others. So, you know, this really is when we start looking at things like AI regulation and, as you said, privacy, identity, we can't expect the US to lead on this front anymore, which has pretty big commercial implications. But I do think we are seeing the end of the era of the social media experiment in some ways. If you look what's happening at Twitter with Facebook and TikTok, um, you know, even the, the content management at YouTube, um, it is going to be a very different world from the, uh, you know, the end of the noughties when the social media um, platforms really blew up. It's, uh, it, it is changing for sure. Yeah, and, and when you start thinking about, you know, metaverse implications of that too, right? Well, that, that'd be great, though. You know, actually, there's room for innovation, right? So if these two, if the giant companies aren't able to dominate the future the way they've dominated the past, that opens up space for new companies to enter. And one data point that's interesting also from this week uh, is that for the first time, um, Meta and Google will have less than 50% of the advertising market um, in, in digital media. That's a really big milestone because previously, those two yeah. companies together had about 75% share they're down a lot right now. Part of that is because of the Apple changes that I talked about on the iPhone, this do not track uh, ability on the iPhone. And part of that is actually because of companies like TikTok that are growing so fast, they're stealing ad revenue. Uh, and that's affecting YouTube's, uh, YouTube as well as Facebook and Instagram revenue across the board. Yeah, so it's an interesting space. Listen, 
I love competition. I love innovation. And frankly, in social media in the United States, we've been frozen for years here because yeah, Facebook's been yeah. so dominant and they've bought all the contenders that could possibly threaten their business. So the fact that it gets shaken up a little bit, I'm not concerned about that. And candidly, I don't take these uh, fireworks around TikTok terribly seriously. Like it really doesn't seem to matter if the if the Chinese government gets access to what 16 year old kids in the United States are watching. To, to sort of bring us back to Charles, I think you know one of the things that's interesting is we we had a bit of a leak on the Apple reality glasses. You know, I don't know if we're gonna, they get, that's what they're going to be called this week, um, but a, around the fact that three um, D video conferencing will be a major feature of the augmented reality glasses. So if you think of the role that video conferencing has played during the pandemic, and you sort of start to think about that in a in a perspective of of networking and social media and bringing people together, it could be quite interesting. But um, you know, Charles, um, you know, let, let's get a bit more futuristic. Um, uh, think thinking about um, sort of bringing communities together to build stories, sort of interactively. Do um, you know, particularly with the way we've seen the AI generative uh, technologies and so forth emerging over the last couple of years? You know, how do you see that opportunity? Opportunity for collabor- collaborative storytelling in the technology uh, on, on the technology platform side. Well, to be honest, I think that there's a lot of growth in the in real life side. Uh, I just want to point that out. I came back a few weeks ago from uh, trying the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser experience that Disney built, and I went with yeah, cool. twelve Future of Storytelling Explorers Club members. And we dressed in in costume and we lived for two days on a galactic star cruiser in the Star Wars world. Um, and I got to do, I mentioned the impact that film had on me from my, my childhood. I got to wield a lightsaber and learn how to do defensive lightsaber fencing. Uh, we just had an amazing time and everything was perfect in world you know from the drinks to the uh servers to to living in the in the on the ship in the cabin so uh i just want to say there's a there's a tremendous growth in the in real life forms of collaborative play and storytelling uh from from that which is basically the beginning of story vacationing um, to the explosion of growth in LARPing, live action role playing, to right. uh, escape Cosplay. rooms in China are bigger business than movie theaters already. And they're evolving so that you're going in dressed in cosplay, you're going with friends, you're, it's not just trying to unlock um, um, cl- clues, it's also interacting with actors and there's a narrative. Uh, so there's like, a, there are new forms being invented every day, um, driven by people's uh, desire to have some time away from their screens. Right, some some mm. human need to be reconnected to our bodies and and each other, um, and and of course immersive theater and immersive art like Meow Wolf. How do you, th- and how do you think the pandemic affected that? Did the pandemic accelerate that, intensify it, or did it slow things down? I definitely well. In the short term, it slowed things down because no one was going to a lot right. of events. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it created a, uh, it will create a backlash where where people are just hungry for experience and hungry mm-hmm. to go do things with other people. So, um, I think we're I'm already seeing a ton of things that are exploding out there and people more and more that will be coming. Now, you have to remember after the the Spanish flu of the teens, uh, it was the explosion of theme parks. Was, was a direct outgrowth hmm. from that. So uh, I do think it's going to actually, I mean, we're, we're too early to be sure of this, but it's going to accelerate that trend. Um, and two things- So we yearn true. for real personal connection, like real world personal connection and not just virtual connection. And and I just want to emphasize that I think also the technology is moving towards things that are going to give us a more human um natural user interface like we're we're going to like i'm not a big believer in vr headsets because they're just so uncomfortable and no one wants to spend eight hours a day in there even if you can do three 3d video conferencing but uh voice gesture 
you, you know, there are so many things that are coming now that are going, and 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 frankly, I think we're going to be heading to a place where our built environments, you know, our our smart rooms and and vehicles are going to be entertainment spaces, and we won't have to be wearing the headset. We'll be we can be in any virtual world. Uh, so uh, one of the trends that I'm very excited about is just that we're going to see technology continue. And of course, Rob, you, you speak about this in Vaporize, like we're going to continue to see that technology sort of disappear. Like it's going yeah. to become more and, and more um, invisible. I think there's another element to this too, Charles, is if we think about highly automated societies, and you know, I'm talking over you know, 20, 30 years away now, I'm not talking about in the next decade necessarily, but um, we can start to see the elements of this now, is when when people are on universal basic income and we have a you know a lot more automation in society, um, you know, the the argument from the the you know the harsh capitalists has been you know, people are just gonna sit on the couch and be a couch potato and sit in VR. But but what you're saying is that there, there is a very strong argument for the fact that if people had more free time on their hands, they would look for more experiential things. They would look to be more involved in elements of, of those forms of entertainment rather than the opposite, you know, which is like just sitting there being passive. Yeah, no, I think that the uh, Clay Shirky talks about this in his book, Cognitive Surplus, that uh, the fact that we spend so many years as couch potatoes watching television or listening to the radio was not because that's our natural state. It's because technology hadn't evolved to be two-way mass media. Right. And now that we do have two-way mass media, the internet arrived and we that's just the beginning, um, that trend is going to accelerate and people want to have that role to play. They, they're not by nature couch potatoes. I, I think that's the, the thing that I'm most excited about is that I think that these the technologies are going to um, start to enable us to do things that are more organically human to us as a species. You know, this, where you're using your thumbs over a little screen, is not the natural way that we evolved over millennia to communicate, right? Gesture, dance, voice, facial expressions, touch. I mean, there's, there, this is one of the things I'm most excited about. We've just begun to unlock our full senses. You know, we've, mm. we've, we've been in sensory deprivation. Um, through our media for a very long time. And um, there's this wonderful book, uh, The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul, where she talks about this whole, the, she shares all the current science on embodied cognition. And uh, she didn't write it for storytellers. I mean, she was writing it for for business people. But but I think of that book as um, the primer, if you will, for the next generation of storytellers, where all of a sudden we're going to realize that we have a much richer palette of sensorial colors that we can play with to create stronger emotional experiences for um, the people formerly known as the audience. You're doing that in a way with Melcher Media. We haven't really talked about your book publishing business, um, but what, what struck me with your book publishing business is, is that you're finding a way to make that a multi-sensory experience. And here's something that, you know, book printing has been around for 500 years. It doesn't seem like a very futuristic business any way you look at it. <laughs> but yet you found ways to engage people on a personal level and drive them to find connections around the books. And I'm talking specifically about this collaboration with J.J. Abrams right here, the ship, the, the, the ship of Theseus. Um, but tell us a little bit about what you did in this book and similar books books uh, it, it, with Melcher Media? Well, that's an effort to try to create a role for the reader, mm -hmm. where the story is told through uh, a primary text that's written on the page, but then there's handwriting the margins that have two characters that are having a, a conversation about what they're reading on the page. And, and then post-it notes, and there's stuff stuck inside, and there might be like some ephemera, like a ticket or something inside of the book. Exactly. Then they leave things inside the pages for each other and for mm -hmm. you, the reader. And so there's a mystery that unfolds around the author of the original novel, and you get to help discover it for yourself as you move through with napkins and postcards and um, letters and and uh, an old newspaper clipping, etc. So um, what I love about that, in fact, one of the nicest compliments we received on that book was from Felix Barrett, the founder of Punch Drunk, the immersive theater company I was talking about before, where he said, Charlie, you're doing in print what we do in theater. 
Mm-hmm. And by that, he meant you're creating an immersive world that someone can enter into and have a tactile, multi-sensory experience where they have an active role. They're part of solving the mystery. So I do think that... that um, even even traditional forms of media, and I think the books may be the mm-hmm. oldest of the mass media, um, can be reinvented for today's audience and the kind of expectation that they have for engagement and, and participation. We should have a follow-up conversation about how we might integrate N- NFTs, non-fungible tokens, into that experience because they're a great way to form a community of fans who feel like they have an investment in the community. Uh, so there's a real commitment level there. But before I go into that, or even that might be something we take up offline here, uh, to wrap up, uh, Brett's offered a couple of questions that I really want to make sure we cover. Um, first, he wants to understand sure. what you think storytelling will look like in the next 30 to 50 years, like really project further out into the future, if you will. Yeah. So Don't I think be afraid you... to get sci fi. Okay. <laughs> so I think that we're going to, um, no question, we're going to have. Uh, virtual characters, right? We're going to have virtual humans that have rich AI and natural language processing, and we are going to be able to have real interactions with these characters and and they will be responsive to us. In fact, they will most likely be um, wearing something, whether it's a story suit or simply the the Apple watch we have on our wrist, that's going to be feeding real-time data to this AI so that they understand things about our response to this story that they're creating for us before we do. Like they'll have better understanding and insight into what's really creating immersion and an emotional response than maybe we even have ourselves um, in that moment. So that's one, like the, this rich world of characters that are alive, you know, seemingly alive that we get to interact with and have a continued relationship with, right? Um, another thing I really believe very strongly is that education which you know that used to be oh kids have to go to school and it's hard work and all that will become the play the story world no, will be the places where we are learning and engaged and we'll be reliving moments in history we'll be having conversations with you know virtual versions of famous people or doing experiments in ways that give us um, an embodied learning of that experience uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that old, um, saying from Confucius, you know, um, tell me and I'll forget, show me and I remember, involve mm. me and I'll understand. Um, and so I, I'm a, I really believe that, you know, the, the theater will become the classroom <laughs> of the future and, and kids will engage in their stories in a way that is best learning you know, humanly possible. Um, another thing that I'm a, I'm a fan of if I go far out is that uh, the kinds of superpowers that we currently think of as being able to be picked up by our avatars or our uh, in in gameplay, um, we'll be able to have those uh, in real life. Mm. We'll be able to have that feeling of like, oh my goodness, I've just put on X-ray vision glasses, or I now have you know echo uh, echo location. You know, like I can hear like a bat, or I can jump like a like. You'll be able to physically experience what it's like to be a superhero. Um, Augments, yeah, augmentation in in various ways. Whether it's, I mean, we had we had something at the future of storytelling called Birdly, which was a simple. Not so simple, but it's it's a device you lay in, you put on a VR headset and has a fan in the front, right, you control right, right. these wings. And I swear you felt like you're flying. I mean, I could spend hours in there because I, I had dreamt of flying. Um, and so... Uh, we will we will have those kinds of experiences. They'll probably be a, they'll probably be sponsored experiences. So you'll have like five minutes of flying or five minutes of X-ray vision brought to you by a chocolate sponsor or some breakfast <laughs> or something. Very, very I, I literally do dream of flying, actually. But you know, then I'm a pilot. But I dream of flying without an aircraft. But uh, um, Charles, just in the interest of time, we got to wrap this up. But I want to just ask you one final question. You said you're optimistic about the future. So yeah. looking out 30 to 50 years, um, you know, what are you most optimistic about? I'm optimistic about the fact that um, one, that storytelling will ultimately help us create more empathy, that it's going to enable us to understand other people's human experiences. And with greater empathy and connection, I believe we will have a more harmonious uh, and safer and, and happier world. Um, so I think that that's 
one big positive that's coming. Um, I also think, again, that stories, as I said in the beginning, are the way that we learn about the world. Uh, we get to safely try on, you know, different lifestyles or different different roles. And uh, that's going to just accelerate in a crazy way. You know, we'll, we'll all be able to have a thousand lives. We'll be able to play a different a, a different type of hero or, or villain over and over again. And I'm hopeful that that's going to, you know, again, lead to a kind of richer understanding than um, what we have now, which I think is very driven by fear. We live in a world that's driven by sort of anxiety and fear. And I think that we can get to through these type of technologies that enhance these kinds of stories that allow for a more diversity and plurality of stories and global stories. I mean, we also grew up in an age where all the stories we had were basically American. You know, we, it was like cultural imperialism, like crazy, you know, a thousandth degree. And and I'm just starting to see the signs that we're getting stories from elsewhere in the world. Guess what? Other countries tell stories and they're amazing. You know, other other people from different parts of the world have have experiences that are really interesting and valuable to us as Americans. Duh. Uh, so like that's starting now to happen. I think that might again help avoid us wanting to kill each other. <laughs> so so these are some of the reasons why I feel there's some cause for um for hope. Uh Though obviously we know, you guys know better than I do, progress is never a straight line, and and every every storytelling tool is just a tool that ultimately can be used for good or for evil, and um, and that's why we preach at Future Storytelling the the importance of using a moral compass. We 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 employ the most powerful tools in the world, really, as storytellers, and uh, and so we need to do that with a sense of of purpose and contribution. That's an optimistic note to wrap up the show. Charlie Melcher, thank you so much for joining us this week on The Futurist. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Tell us where we can find out more. The people who are listening, where can they find you on the web? Thank you. Yes. So um, they certainly can go to our website, which is just fost.org. Um, and there, there, and they can also find our uh, podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And again, it's it's Future of Storytelling or FOST. Um, and uh, at our website, you can find more information about the Faust Explorers Club. And we hope people come join us and become members. So thank Very you, gentlemen. Cool. This has been such fun. I really appreciate being here. With uh, you. We've enjoyed it as well. Thank you, Charlie, for joining us this week on The Futurists. And a big thanks to Kevin Hirschen, our engineer and producer, Lisbeth Severance, who's our other producer, the team at Provoke Media, my co-host, Brett King, who always diligently dials in no matter where he's traveling in the world. He's always out there finding more futurists for us to interview. Thank you, Brett, for joining us uh, long distance uh, from Koh Samui this week. And um, we will be back every week with another episode of The Futurist to interview another great thinker, someone who's got some vision for what's coming next. If you've enjoyed the show, of course, we would welcome it if you would please give us a five-star review. That helps other people find the show. And of course, that helps grow our audience. It has been growing well. We really are grateful to the people who've reached out to us through social media to give us suggestions for speakers and the kinds of questions that we might ask those speakers. Please keep it coming. We love that kind of engagement and it's been a great deal of fun for us to see the audience grow and to see the number of in incoming inquiries and new connections that we're making. So that has been a great and fun, gratifying experience for all of us. Thank you very much for checking out The Futurists and we will see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask.